Revelation 12. As we continue our series in the book of Revelation, we are now seeing the war between Satan and his followers and Jesus and his followers. We looked last time at the beginning of this chapter, chapter 12, and this morning we're going to finish the chapter. In the beginning of chapter 12, we saw that Satan's efforts to destroy Jesus and his people are forever doomed to fail. And that theme continues today. Last time, Satan's attacks were focused on Jesus as Jesus came to earth and ministered. Today, the focus turns to Satan's attacks against the church, Jesus' people. And what we'll find this morning is that Jesus defeats Satan And Jesus' people live faithfully in the confidence of his victory. That's the call to us this morning, to live faithfully in the confidence of Jesus' victory. Because Jesus has defeated Satan. All right, so follow along with me. Let's read Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 7, down through the end, verse 17. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Well, let's begin this morning with the question of who is Michael? Who is Michael? Michael is the one who leads the armies of heaven. The name Michael means, who is like God? Michael shows up in scripture in two other places, in the book of Daniel and the book of Jude. And in Daniel 10, listen to the descriptions here as you piece together who Michael is, okay? In Daniel 10, when Gabriel is unable to overcome the demonic forces, it is Michael who shows up and defeats them. And in Daniel 12, it's prophesied that in the time of tribulation, Michael will arise as a great prince who has charge of the people of God and the people whose names are written in the book of life will be delivered. In the book of Jude, Michael is called the archangel or the chief of the angels. 
It's very similar to the title that we find in Joshua, Captain of the Lord's Hosts. And the only other place that the archangel is mentioned is 1 Thessalonians, where Jesus, at his second coming, descends with the voice of the archangel. And the most natural reading there is that it is Jesus' own voice that it is spoken of. So all those characteristics put together make it pretty clear that Michael, here in Revelation 12, is another name or title for Jesus. After all, Jesus is the one who casts out the demonic forces. Paul says that he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And Hebrews 2 tells us that Jesus is the one who would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And John says in 1 John that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And we can also note that in our text this morning in Revelation 12, we're told in verse 17 that Satan went off to make war with the rest of the offspring of the woman, which means that the one that Satan had been making war against was also part of the offspring of the woman. In other words, was a man, Jesus. So we're to understand that the Michael here is Christ. So in this war in heaven, Jesus defeats Satan. And Satan is cast down to the land along with his demons. Now remember, when we see the word earth, typically in the book of Revelation, you could just translate it land. It's not talking about the whole planet. The, the word is talking specifically about a particular patch of dirt, the land of Israel. So Satan is cast down out of heaven and he releases his fury on the land. We've already seen in past chapters the demonic attacks on the land leading up to AD 70, the satanic demonic influences on the people of Jerusalem, murders, thefts, sacrilege in the temple, cannibalism. It's as if evil is just simply allowed for this time and in this place to have free reign. Satan is cast down to the land. And then the loud voice in heaven announces that now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. So at this point, the kingdom of Christ has begun. We're not looking for the kingdom to begin at some point in the future. The kingdom of Christ has already begun. It begins with his victory over Satan and sin and death. Jesus is ruling over his kingdom now, putting all things in subjection under him. But the growth of the kingdom is gradual. It takes time. As Pastor Doug Wilson is fond of saying, it doesn't arrive like the 82nd Airborne. It, it's yeast that works its way through the lump of dough and the dough rises over time. It's a mustard seed. That's a tiny little thing that grows into a great plant. The kingdom of Christ has arrived, but its growth is gradual over time. And note that the believers conquer by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And then it explains, for they loved not their lives even unto death. 
How can the death of a martyr be considered conquering? How is that victory? Well, similar to the way that Jesus' death was victory. Jesus' death was a victory over sin. It rescued us from the sentence of death. Similarly, the death of the martyrs advances the gospel. Their death makes known the great truth about who Jesus is and what he's done. And this works, the the reason that this works is because their life is not their ultimate concern. Have you noticed over the last couple of years and months that we have come through, global pandemic and all of that, that it's become common for people to finish a conversation by saying, stay safe. Have you noticed that? That makes sense if staying safe, staying alive is the ultimate thing. But the Christian understands that your life is not ultimate. It's really not good advice anyway. We should be saying, take risks or do something dangerous. Imagine if our founding fathers had gotten together to talk about independence and then decided, eh, no, it wouldn't be safe. No, the important things, the great things, happen through danger and risk, not through staying safe. And the Christian understands this. So they love not their lives even unto death. The African church father, Tertullian, wrote that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That's one way in which the kingdom grows. Christianity began as a small persecuted group of of believers in the years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. But after a few hundred years of that persecution, Christianity became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. God has no problem achieving victory through apparent defeat. And in verse 12, again, we have a statement of the fury of Satan. The land and the sea, Israel and the nations, are warned that the devil is coming in great wrath. Why? Because he knows his time is short. That's an interesting statement. Satan knew that he was defeated. He knew that it was only a matter of time before he was restricted from what he wanted to do. And God did limit Satan's activity. He is no longer free to deceive the nations. His agenda will not succeed. So why does he continue to fight? Why does he rage against the people of God? It's pure hatred of God and of God's people. He hates Jesus and he hates Jesus's people. And that's good for us to remember as we look around at the culture that we live in and we see the satanic rage, the demonic hatred of those who are fighting against God's law. But Satan is a defeated foe and he knows it. Now remember that the woman we talked about last time is faithful Israel or true Israel. The ideal Israel. It's, it's faithful old covenant Jews and the new covenant church together. In other words, it's the people of God. And now that the child, Jesus, has ascended to heaven, okay, after his resurrection, Jesus ascends to God's throne, the dragon turns his attention to Jesus' people. 
So he pursues the woman. He attacks the church. But the woman is given eagle's wings and flies to the wilderness to be nourished by God. That's language that is drawn from the story of the Exodus. In the Exodus, God's people flee to the wilderness. They're pursued by Pharaoh. And remember, Pharaoh is associated with a serpent. You can even just picture that with that traditional headdress that you see a Pharaoh having with the, the snake head. Pharaoh is associated with a serpent. And so you have Pharaoh the serpent pursuing God's people as they flee to the wilderness. But what happens? The waters of the Red Sea come crashing down on Pharaoh and his army and God's people are safe in the wilderness. Listen to how it's described in the song of Moses, which we find in Exodus 15. This is verses 9 through 12. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. Well, the language here in Revelation 12 is that same of the earth swallowing up the water that comes from the dragon. It's also picking up, that same language is picking up on another story that fits in with the exodus in the wilderness as well. It's the story of Korah's rebellion. When Korah rebelled against God's chosen leader, Moses, God caused the earth to swallow him up and those who rebelled with him. The story is found in Numbers 16. The ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all the goods, all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. So get the picture. God uses the earth to swallow up the threat against his faithful people. And the language John uses in Revelation 12 is of God using the earth to swallow up that threat against his people. But there's another layer here too. John says that the earth or the land came to the help of the woman and the land opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. So where did the fury of Satan go? Well, it was absorbed by the land instead of by God's people. Jerusalem and Judea absorbed the fury of Satan in the years leading up to AD 70, and that's part of the sentence of judgment that Jesus is executing against Israel, Jerusalem, and Judea for their rejection of him. And then we see that after the fury fell on the land, Satan became furious with the woman, the church. And so he went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Satan is at war with the church. And the Bible tells us that Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is not to be trifled with. But at the same time, we do not need to fear him. We are only to fear God. Satan is limited in what God allows him to do and in what he has the ability to do. 
For example, we see in the story of Job that Satan has to get permission from God to act. So Satan and his angels will never attack God's people without God's knowledge and permission. In James 4, verse 7, James tells us that if we resist Satan, he will flee from us. John writes in 1 John 5, verse 18, that he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. And Paul says in Romans 16 that the church, the early church, crushed Satan under their feet. And the church through the ages continues to do that when they live in faithfulness. So Satan is furious, he's hateful, he seeks to devour us, but God has him on a tight leash. And God uses him for his purposes. We don't need to fear Satan. Now who does Satan target in this passage? He targets the offspring of Mother Church. In other words, true believers. And how does John describe these true believers? They are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. We've said that our mission as a church is discovering together what it means to follow Jesus. Well, this is one definition of what it means to follow Jesus. Keep his commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Obey him and be loyal to him. In other words, you don't get to pick and choose which commandments you're going to obey. Parents, if your child failed to obey you when you told them to do something, and then they tried to argue that, well, sure, I might not have done what you said, but this other thing that you said to do, I did that, so I'm actually obeying. No, if they failed to do what you told them in a particular area, that's disobedience. And in the same way, we don't get to pick and choose which of God's commands we're going to obey. We don't get to say, well, I'm not going to lie, but I'm not going to worry about that command about assembling together with God's people. No, that's disobedience. I'm not murdering anyone, but I'm just going to go ahead and harbor this bitterness for a little longer. No, that's disobedience. I'm not stealing anything. I would never steal but I might participate in a little gossip. No, a follower of Jesus is one who obeys God's commands and is loyal to Jesus. Well, that's, that's the walk through the text this morning. That's just the explanation of what's there. The main idea of what I want you to see is this. Jesus defeats Satan, and Jesus' people live faithfully in the confidence of his victory. Jesus defeats Satan, and Jesus' people live faithfully in the confidence of his victory. So let's talk about that truth. Notice the pattern here, because we see it twice in this passage. In verses 7 to 12, we see it once, and then we see it again in verses 13 to 17. Jesus defeats Satan, and Jesus' people live faithfully in the confidence of his victory. So in verses 7 to 12, in the war in heaven, you see Jesus defeating Satan. Satan is cast down to the land, and his accusing of the brethren has failed. Jesus' people have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They live faithfully in light of Jesus' victory. Then you see it again in verses 13 to 17. The dragon pursues the woman, but she's carried away to safety, and his attacks fail, and they live faithfully. They're described as obeying God's commands and holding to the testimony of Jesus. 
And as I thought about the faithful lives of these members of the church that are described here in Revelation 12, it brought to mind the description in Hebrews 11. So I'd like you to turn there with me. Turn to Hebrews 11. This is the chapter that is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. It talks about what faith looks like in the life of a believer, and it recounts various Old Testament believers who lived faithfully. And it begins with a description of faith. So look with me there at verses 1 and 2. Hebrews 11, start by looking at verses 1 and 2. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. So faith is living according to things of which we have assurance and conviction. Specifically, it means living God's way, according to God's promises, even when you don't see the fulfillment of those promises. And that's what these Old Testament believers are commended for. And it's how we should live as well, by faith. But what about those who had faith, but bad things still happened to them? Or they died before the promises were fulfilled? Or what about the saints in Revelation 12 who were martyred for their faith? Those who loved not their lives even to death. Well, look down at verses 13 to 16 of Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. If you can live by faith and be willing to die for the sake of Christ, that means two things, and these are very important. First, it means that you have an eternal perspective. You know that this life is not all there is. You see that your life doesn't end at death, but you will go on living for eternity. And what you do in this life matters for the next one. That eternal perspective allows you to live faithfully now, even if it means losing your life for the sake of Christ. And second, if you can live this way, it means that you understand that life is not all about you. You are not at the center. Jesus is. So dying for his honor is more important than living for yourself. It's not all about you. It's about Jesus. Now look at the next example that's given in Hebrews 11. Right after the verses we just looked at, starting in verse 17, this gives us insight into the rational, reasonable faith of Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is biblical faith. It's not blind. It's not a leap in the dark. Abraham had reasons. That's what the text is explaining to us. He considered what he knew about God. God was powerful enough to bring life from death. After all, he brought Isaac to them when they were so old that they were as good as dead. And God was always true to his word. He had never failed Abraham yet. So Abraham reflected on the promise of God that through Isaac, his descendants would be named. And Abraham reasoned that if Isaac must die, then God must bring him back from the dead. When someone characterizes your faith as blind faith or a leap in the dark, don't accept that. The Christian faith is not blind. It is the exact opposite. Blind faith is what characterizes nonsense like Darwinianism or materialism, ridiculous theories that fly in the face of what we know about the world. That's blind faith. But the Christian faith is the most reasonable thing in the world. Yes, it absolutely requires faith. But it's well-placed, reasonable faith in the God who is there. The God who has revealed himself in his word and in his son, Jesus. Keep your place in Hebrews, even though I'm going to move away from it for a minute, because we're going to come back there. We've seen that this, this doctrine that we're talking about, that Jesus defeats Satan and Jesus' people live faithfully in the confidence of his victory, that, that that is borne out by scripture, by what we see in Revelation 12, what we see in Hebrews 11, and there's a lot of other places that we could turn to see that too. But I want you to understand too that it just simply makes sense. We noted last week that Jesus and Satan are not equals. Jesus is the eternal son of God. Satan is a created being. Of course Jesus is more powerful than Satan. Of course Jesus defeats Satan. It makes sense that living faithfully to Jesus puts you unfailingly on the winning side. It's also true that as the Son of God, Jesus has limitless power and wisdom. He can do anything consistent with his will, with his character. So when he sets out to defeat Satan, he has the power to do it. And he has perfect wisdom. So he knows just the best way to defeat him. Satan will never trick Jesus. He will never outsmart or outpower him, overpower him. Not only that, but remember that Satan depends on Jesus for his very existence. Paul tells us that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. If Jesus stopped upholding the life of Satan, Satan would cease to exist. So that tells us, first of all, that Jesus is way stronger. And second, that Jesus has a purpose for Satan to continue to exist. The existence of Satan serves the purposes of God. 
Don't forget that. Now, how should we take this doctrine, this truth, about Jesus defeating Satan and our responsibility to live faithfully in light of that? How do we take that and put it into practice in our lives? Of what use is it to us? Well, earlier we saw in Hebrews 11 the description of faith with its eternal perspective, and we saw the example of Abraham. Once chapter 11 concludes, after it gives all these different examples of these faithful saints, chapter 12 then tells us how to apply it. So look there with me. Hebrews 12, I just want you to look at the first three verses with me. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. And here we're going to see four ways that this doctrine can be put to use in our lives. Verse 1 begins this way. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, let me just stop there. Here, we learn that we can take courage from the saints who've gone before us. That's what the great cloud of witnesses is. So we should take time to consider their lives and their examples. For example, think about the Apostle Paul. He suffered greatly in all kinds of different ways, but he continued on faithfully to the end. The last thing we see Paul doing is sitting in house arrest in Rome. And what's he doing? Preaching the gospel. He's telling people about the kingdom of Christ faithfully. We can also take courage from the lives of those who have followed Jesus in the years since the end of the New Testament. In other words, from church history. That's worth our time. One of the men that's been most helpful to me to learn about is Jonathan Edwards. I benefit from his writings, but also from his life story. I've read a number of biographies about him, and I'm always struck with the idea that here's a man who's incredibly intelligent and curious and, and thinks rigorously, but he also has this passion and affection for Christ, and he brings the two things together in his life, and that challenges me. Or consider the example of a man like Abraham Kuyper. Not only did he write a bunch of helpful and solid theology, but he also put his belief in the lordship of Christ into practice. He served in politics in the Netherlands, even rising up to be the prime minister. He followed Jesus faithfully in all areas of life. And we have this this example of how he lived out his faith in the realm of government, not just church or religious activities. And history is full of examples of people that we can learn from if we will take the time to notice the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. A second use of this doctrine that we find right there in Hebrews 12 is in the middle of verse 1. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. This means that we should seek holiness. Notice what it tells you about sin. Two things. First, sin weighs you down. If you were running a race, you wouldn't put ankle weights on. And when you're running the Christian race, sin will weigh you down. It'll hinder your progress. So seek holiness and put sin to death in your life. And second, it tells us that sin clings closely. That word has the idea of skillfully surrounding so as to prevent someone from accomplishing something. 
Think of a cornerback in the NFL guarding a wide receiver. You'll hear an announcer say something like, he's all over him like a wet blanket. It means that the receiver can't do what he's trying to do because the cornerback has prevented him. He's skillfully surrounded him so that he can't make a catch. And that's what sin does to us. It prevents us from living as God intended. But holiness enables us to walk with God, living the way that God intends. John Owen wrote, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. He also wrote, it being our duty to mortify, to be killing of sin while it is in us, we must be at work. He that is appointed to kill an enemy, if he leaves striking before the other ceases living, does but half his work. Owen was familiar with the military because he served as chaplain in Oliver Cromwell's new model army. And you can hear what he's saying there. When your enemy is there in front of you, you need to finish him off. How many movies have you watched where the bad guy seems to get killed, but not quite? And then what happens? <laughs> the sequel, or he, or he comes back with a vengeance in some way, right? That's what Owen is saying. We've got to kill sin in our lives because sin weighs you down. Sin clings closely. It prevents you from living a holy life. And a third use of this doctrine that we see here in Hebrews 12 is that we should run with endurance. Run with endurance. The last part of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Endurance means you're in it for the long haul. Don't give up. Faith means believing in Christ even when you're doubting yourself. Your success in the race won't be because of your strength or your abilities. It'll be because of Christ. So keep the faith and endure. And notice which race you're supposed to run. Run the race that is set before you. Who sets the race before us? God does. God chooses which race you are to run. You're not supposed to run someone else's race. God gives you the race he wants you to run. So it won't do to be looking at others and wishing that you could run their race. No, your eyes shouldn't be on others. And that leads us then to the final use or application of the doctrine this morning. Look at verses 2 and 3 of Hebrews 12 to see where your eyes should be. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So look to Jesus. Consider him. We look to him and we see the one who gave us faith and has promised to keep us to the end. We look to him and we see the one who endured the cross even though he didn't deserve it. We look to him. We see the one who saw the joy that would be his after he endured. That's what we're supposed to do as well. We look to him. We see the one who was rewarded by God, the Father, after he endured. And we have that reward to look forward to as well if we are faithful. And not only do we look to him and keep our eyes on him, we're also supposed to consider him. 
think about him, meditate on him, study him. Jesus endured hostility and persecution, and when we consider him, we are strengthened so that we can endure the same thing ourselves. Considering Jesus helps us to be prepared to run the race that God has set before us. Satan is at war with the church, but he's a defeated foe. Jesus has defeated Satan, and we are called to live faithfully in the confidence of his victory. So take courage from those who've gone before us, that great cloud of witnesses. Seek to live a holy life, putting sin to death. Run with endurance the race that God has set before you and do all of this by looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to have faith in Christ that we would believe that Satan is a defeated foe and that we would live differently because of it, that we would live in the confidence that comes from his victory. I pray that we would look to that great cloud of witnesses and, and take courage from them. I pray that we would seek to live a holy life, that we would run with endurance the race that you've given to us and that we would have our eyes set on Jesus. And that in doing that, you would enable us to live faithfully in the confidence that comes from the victory of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.